Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is episode 263, our friend's favorite games, War of the Ring with Andrew Parks. We like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, Anthony, it looks like we're back with one of our best friends in gaming, Andrew Parks talking about one of our favorite games in gaming and absolutely your favorite game, War of the Ring. Yeah, I love when this happens where like somebody comes on and one of two things happens. Either they talk about something that I haven't thought about in years or maybe even ever played like Kurt did a couple weeks ago with Wiz War, which I love. Mm -hmm. Just haven't, haven't played that in like five years. Or in the case of this week's episode, Andrew shows up with War of the Ring, which is my number one game of all time. So we can just geek out about War of the Ring for however long, you know, we're talking. So it's it's a lot of fun and it's it's a cool way to kind of connect with these people who we frequently were talking about like new stuff, their new projects, which we're gonna do as well. Andrew has a few things up his sleeve he wants to talk about. But it's also fun to just kind of go back and talk about something that we all kind of have as a shared experience instead of just what's new, tell me about it. I don't know anything about that. Let's ask a bunch of questions. You know, like the typical you know, interview format. So these are becoming one of my favorite things to do uh, for the show, just because we get to dive into stuff that we normally don't talk about because it's older games. And in this case, this week, it's one of my faves. Absolutely. And Andrew Parks has developed some of our favorite games and probably some of your favorite games. So stick around for the feature review as we talk War of the Ring and also through the ages so a lot of great stuff coming up but anthony that's not all what's going on with uh, bga bga it is march if you have listened to this show for at least one year you know that in march every single year for i think this is the fifth year now we've done this we do a bracket because that's what you do in march you do brackets our march gamer madness is typically we take some combination of 64 games and there's some kind of theme that goes with it and we pit them against each other and we run through it over the course of two or three episodes but the real fun comes in that we also put up a bracket for all of you to fill out and this year what we're doing in terms of topic is kickstarter games that the number one through 64 based on how much they were funded so went into kickstarter pulled a list together of the top funded game of all time on kickstarter uh, which is kingdom death monster all the way down to number 64 and we rank them out uh, into four different groups, and we're pitting them against each other. So we're going to dive into that next week uh, with the full episode where we run through round one, which is all 64 games, those 32 matchups. But if you want to get involved right now, you can go to BoardGamersAnonymous.com, or you can go to Facebook, uh, backslash BoardGamersAnonymous, and we have a bracket that you can fill out. So it'll ask you, it'll pop up every single matchup. You pick which of the two games you think is the better Kickstarter campaign, and it'll run through and you'll pick a eventual winner. When we're all done on uh, March 12th, so about a week after you listen to this, we will compare what we eventually picked with what you guys put into your you know guesses for the bracket, and whoever got closest to the final answer is going to win one of the games from the list. Now, it's not any one game from the list. Keep in mind that some of these games are extremely expensive or extremely out of print. So it's going to be a curated list of games that are accessible and relatively, you know, 
within our price range. But it'll be a good, healthy list of games to pick from that have done well on Kickstarter. And there's a lot of them. You know, I went through this list the other day. It was a lot of fun to pull together. There's a lot of stuff. So it's just fun to fill out the bracket. I do it every year, even before we record the episode. And there's a chance that you win a game out of it. So why not hop on and do it? I think you guys will have a lot of fun with this. We are really interested in some of the matchups that popped up. It is a lot of miniatures games. It is a lot of party games. But there's also a few surprises in there that I think will make for some pretty good conversations. So stay tuned. That is the next two, three weeks of stuff. Yeah, this is a old school throwback to my origin story, Kicking the Habit podcast. I think we went through 30 some odd episodes going through some of the biggest Kickstarters out there and some of the biggest scams that are out there. So it's really kind of, I don't know, a bit of nostalgia going back and taking a look at the top 64 and see if some of the games that I backed might be on there or some of the games that maybe I back but regret backing are on there. So definitely check out that list. I think it's just going to be I'm going to just take a shot out here and going to say it's the it's going to be the most exciting and interesting fight because we really put our heart and soul into backing a lot of these projects out there and we follow them throughout. We baby them, we get them in. It, it it's our big big kind of surprise to ourselves. And, you know, sometimes they continue to rise and sometimes they fall off the map. So you will have an opportunity to judge and to compete in the bracket. So we hope that all of you will join up there and, uh, you know, make a good showing of it. All right, Anthony, that's not all. We're also doing some other things with uh, BGA. Let's talk about your 10 by 10, man. Yes. Yes. So this it's two months in. I bet you guys didn't think I'd still be doing this, right? Because... I didn't. No, I didn't either, honestly. I mean, I did. I did. It's a good group of guys, and we are fully on board and very committed to getting this done. But it's one of those things like a New Year's resolution that anything can pop up that would derail it. And we've all been busy, and, you know, like my wife's starting a new job, and everybody's got their own stuff and travel and everything else. And yet we're still making it happen. So the 10 by 10, which we launched on. January 1st, I think the first time we played was sometime that week, and we are at 17 games played through the end of February. So 17% in, which puts us exactly on pace, um, which is exactly where we were at the end of January, which is pretty good because I was out of town for a whole week. Uh, a couple of the other guys went on weekend getaways or away, just couldn't game in general. So we've managed to keep up. We have played all but one game at least once, and Keep in mind that this list had a lot of really long games on it. We have 18xx on there, Anachrony, Food Chain Magnet, a lot of stuff that takes a good chunk of time. And, you know, we've only played each of those once, but we've done it once. What I've found really interesting so far, though, is two games in particular that we've played five times each, Brass Birmingham and Root. Um, Brass is a fun one because the game doesn't really change a whole lot uh, from game to game. It is the same core mechanics. A few things are a little bit different. Obviously, the cards are going to come out differently, so your strategy changes. But pretty consecutively, pretty persistently, our scores are increasing. Our understanding of the game is increasing. Our ability to recognize and see where we've made mistakes is honing in. And we've only played it five times over two months. So it's not like we're playing it every night of the week. But as, and I think I said this last time, as someone who 
often only plays a game once, twice, sometimes three times at the most to get an impression before giving my uh, kind of verdict here on the podcast. It's really interesting to see a game like this. It has so much depth over many, many plays. So I'm actually really excited to see this one through. And then Root, of course, has the, I don't know, what is it now? Eight different factions you can play as. I had not even played with all of them yet. I still have not played with one of them. And it's just cool to kind of see how each of them plays out and kind of the ebb and flow of things and how different impacts occur on the map based on who's playing and how they're playing. I think I talked about this before when I reviewed the uh, Underworld expansion, that it's a little fiddly now with all the different rules and stuff, but it's still a really good game. I'm really happy we're doing it. So 10 by 10, if you have the right group, if you have people who can commit consistently and are just fun to be around and the right list of games to play, this is absolutely just 100% worth it. It's been a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to getting through the rest of them. I guess I'm really interested to see what happens when we start digging into the longer games, you know, consecutively week over week. So far, so good. Yeah, no, I really admire that. I think I've talked to my group a bit about maybe putting something like this together because we always kind of wind up playing the new hotness, which is typically very good. But at the same time, we never really come back around to games very much. So, yeah, I, I guess this is something that... uh we might try out at least maybe in a smaller version of this. I think it's worth it. Even if you just say, Hey, we all really like this game, right? Let's commit to playing it five times, you know, just over the next couple months. Let's just make sure we play this once every week or two. So that it really sinks in because it's really easy to play a game, get a little bit out of it and either think, Hey, this was fun. Let's move on. Or I don't know if it was really right for me. Let's move on. But you don't really fully understand what's in there like what you're getting out of it and i think the 10 by 10 for sure is really going to do that and for the most part these are games we all liked anyways that's why they're on the list but it shows me that there's a lot more under the surface even for games that maybe i kind of skimmed past because i just didn't love them right away so it's making me more open-minded to go back to stuff all right so that's what's going on with bga anthony let's talk about what's going on with the listeners what's our question of the week Okay, so we didn't have like a formal question of the week, but we had a really interesting discussion that popped up on the uh, BGA Slack um, not too long ago. And it's in relation to the new policy, if you guys haven't heard this yet or seen it, uh, that Asmodee will no longer be replacing parts for people. So if you've ever gotten a game from like Fantasy Flight in particular and found that you're missing a card or, you know, a component was broken or whatever it might be, um, for example, I bought Twilight Imperium 4th Edition at Gen Con a couple years ago, and uh, some of the cards had typos on them, so you could just send it in and get a replacement. I was also missing some of the tokens for a specific faction, and they just replaced those for me. It was great. It was easy. It was quick. They're not doing that anymore. So there was a bit of a blowback on Reddit and Facebook as people realized that, A, you can't contact Asmodee or any of its companies to get replacement parts anymore, and B, if you do have a problem, you have to bring the game back to where you bought it, um, hopefully an FLGS so that they'll help you out, but just where in general, wherever it is. And then that company has to send it back for replacement. So you're just getting a whole new game instead of whatever pieces you're missing. And there's a few different takes on it. Of course, there's the generally, you know, the initial response I had is like, well, I mean, I guess at scale, it doesn't really work to have like 
two or three people in a warehouse running around and picking up parts. But then there's also other part of it where you're like, this is going to be a big pain, isn't it? And a lot of people just aren't going to do it and you're just going to deal with it, you know? And it's kind of stinks because when you get a game that's missing a part, you just can't really play it. It doesn't work. You know, it's not, the game itself is just not usable if you're missing pieces from it um, with a few exceptions. So a bunch of people chimed in. They had opinions. Uh, our buddy Jason from Everybody's Game Night says it feels like a market correction. Uh, publishers giving replacement parts is very generous and friendly, but it doesn't necessarily scale based on the size of you know the industry as it's moving. Martin mentions a friend of his who owns an FLGS, and he said Asmodee to this point has not really communicated with him very much, so he doesn't really know what's going on. I know I personally stopped in at my local store just this last week, and the owner was actively packing up the first game he'd gotten in that applied to this policy, so he didn't actually know what was going to happen. He had to ship it back to the distributor and was going to see. Ideally, he gets replaced and he gets you know compensated for whatever the difference was, but you know it's kind of a new thing for everybody. So it's tricky. I mean, and it's different for every industry. Like some industries... If you have a problem, you wouldn't go to the retailer. You would contact the company directly. It's it's all about whether it's a commodity versus, you know, a perishable. Um, it's it's very different if you buy, for example, a printer than if you buy, you know, a piece of clothing that's missing a button or something. So, I find the whole conversation very interesting, and there's obviously a lot of sides to it. But these days, anything to do with Asmodee making changes. People have very strong opinions. So I thought it'd be fun to bring it up. Yeah, I, I guess this is more of Asmodee's consolidation, stripping things down, slimming things down, making things more manageable for their bottom line. Obviously, as you mentioned, having a couple of people in the warehouse run around and getting replacement parts for their game is obviously not cost effective. And they'd rather kind of dump that responsibility on their local retail people, which does not seem cool because the local friendly game stores obviously have more than enough things to do on their own and clearly do not have the time to do this kind of stuff. Obviously, that being said, you know, I think we're starting to see a different direction in gaming just in general. Like Asmodee is just kind of known more and more for this as far as just changing the industry. And I, I think that this is the way, you know, like they've done with the map pricing, like they've done with, you know, having certain online stores kind of banned from their products. I think we'll see other stores follow suit. And that's what really always worries me. It's not one game store, but Asmodee has a, a gravitational, footprint that just draws everybody else in and then you're going to see more gaming companies do this and i'll be honest with you there's been a large number of my games that have problems with them missing pieces or you know erratas or any number of different things that that happen and you know i tend to be a good sport about it i actually have a game that's i cannot play because i'm missing a whole punch board and i have to get that resolved but I think that for an industry, they really do need to address those issues as quickly as possible because a lot of these games are challenging and a lot of people would not realize that a game that came from you know, a designer or a publisher would typically have those issues because they're used to dealing with the big box, big market games. And, you know, did you ever get a Monopoly game that didn't have what it was supposed to have? 
And if it did, you usually would send it back to the company and they would, you know, send you something back or you could just return it to the store and get a replacement game, like a whole new game. Obviously, that's not something you can really do with designer games. So, yeah, I think this is an ongoing problem. And I think Asmodee continues to do things that are benefiting their bottom line, but I think overall are problematic, if not destructive to the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, your Monopoly example is perfect because that seems to be what Asmodee is trying to get people to do now. Just return the whole game. You'll get a whole new game and back. But you're talking about a much smaller segment of the industry and way smaller businesses. Like, And maybe it's just that Asmodee would prefer not to deal with friendly local game stores. They're certainly not very nice to them. <laughs> they don't make their lives very easy with like the map pricing and how they manage open uh, play events and all that stuff. So maybe they'd prefer to be the next Hasbro and just sell through the big box stores who will handle all that stuff without an issue, without an issue. So I don't know. It's hard not to be cynical about the whole thing. And we've talked about this a lot recently, especially with the news that um, Colby's getting back, quote unquote, uh, Plaid Hat, uh, but minus all the games that actually make any money for Plaid Hat. So it seems like Asmodee is trying to trim the fat, trying to remove things that cost them money that are extraneous to the bottom line. Fantasy Flight has been kind of shedding weight for a while now, getting rid of IPs um, that are long in the tooth or just aren't making them as much money anymore. You've got things like Lord of the Rings, uh, the card game's going on hiatus soon. We've got Game of Thrones seems to be ending. Uh, Star Wars Destiny is ending. So it just makes you wonder what's going to happen next for these companies. Uh, that are part of the Asmodee group because it certainly doesn't seem like they're growing or and are not particularly consumer friendly. So it, it, I don't know. Either they're trying to become the next Hasbro or they're trying to prep for a sale into something that could become the next Hasbro. Certainly seems that way. All right, so that's our question of the week. Anthony, let's get on to the games that we want to get to the table. But first, let's talk about a Kickstarter that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. I know you've been avoided, but hey, Anthony, guess what? Marvel United had more stuff, man. <laughs> no. See, here's the thing, though, is that this campaign is over before anybody's <laughs> hearing this. So I'm not even sure what the point of this is. I don't know what we're doing. Look, I, I mean, look, we, we've been on for almost seven years now at this point. 263 episodes of torturing our listeners with fantastic games out there that we would love for them to pick up and get to the table. So... It's about time we turn the table, so to speak, or flip the table, so to speak. And, you know, this is a Kickstarter that you and I have some interest in, most particularly because the miniatures are pretty fantastic and they come in just crazy amounts <laughs> for the game. But the game itself is super, super simple, family, kid-friendly kind of game. So can you, Anthony, can you resist backing this game that has a tremendous amount of wondrous ip miniatures but no gameplay can you do it i don't know man i got 48 hours left i just got the notice like two hours ago it's 48 hours i yeah so far so good i have not backed it well i'm gonna throw some more at you because this is what you are simon tends to do yeah <laughs> And apparently you're on their payroll, so it's fine. <laughs> I wish I was on their payroll. <laughs> Did you hear that, Simon? You got to cut a check to me, man, I tell you. All right, so when last we left, Anthony, we added Vision, which we already knew, but we added Nova. Yeah, I don't, yeah that's fine. 
I don't know. How about uh, Scarlet Witch? It's cool. It's a cool witch costume. Yeah. We have uh, Electra with a pretty cool, you know, pose there with the size. Yeah, I was never a big Daredevil guy, so I'm still good. I'm good. Well, what about Daredevil himself? Uh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I'm still good. Still good. Hold <laughs> up. All right. How about uh, America Chavez? I'm not familiar with this character. I think she's relatively new to the comics. Yeah, I don't. I know of her, but I don't know enough to be swayed, as I say. All right. How about Spider-Man 2099? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> Spider-Man 2099. That's pretty cool. And one of my favorite characters of all time, Squirrel Girl. Oh, they did Squirrel Girl. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Okay. Does she have her little squirrel friend? She actually does, which is pretty fantastic. Come on, stupid people. And then, and then to wrap it up, at least on the hero's side of it, Doctor Strange. Oh, he's way down the list. That's funny. I know. That was kind of weird that they left him that far. Now, from the villains... They added Hella. I don't know if that works for you. Meh. Okay. What about Kingpin? I mean, I mean, I dig the whole Spider-Man set, but sure, you know, King, Kingpin's cool. All right, and last but not least, at least as far as this campaign currently is at, as you mentioned, there's about forty-five hours left to go. There are over two million dollars for this campaign. Baron Zemo in his original comic book costume, not his MCU. Kind Ooh. Of. Yeah, like the actual Baron Zemo, not just an angry dude. Yes. So, uh, that's pretty cool. And then I'm just going to run through this a little bit quickly because, you know, again, I know that uh, everyone's been enjoying this, but for the $190 ultimate pledge, and honestly, if you're going to back this at all, it's going to be the $190 pledge. I don't know if I recommend you doing that, but. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it at this level just to get the miniatures. The core set, the Infinity Gauntlet expansion, which actually comes with a vacuum form plastic Infinity Gauntlet that actually you put the little plastic uh, oh my God, gems of into. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the uh, return of the Sinister Six. So if you know anything Ooh. about Spider-Man, you get all of his baddies in that one set, That's which is cool. very cool. Mm-hmm. That is very cool. Yep. And we already talked about Rise of the Black Panther. We already talked about Tales of Asgard. We talked about Enter the Spider-Verse and Guardians of the Galaxy Remix. Not to mention Spider-Ham, Beta Ray Bill, and Gamora. So that is your 190. Not to mention if you want to go ahead and back a playmat and those cardboard locations, which together are going to cost you an additional $45. So again, Anthony fantastic amount of miniatures for the price really thin gameplay but you know look it's meant to be family friendly it's meant to be something you could drop at the table and hey look there's three or four icons that you could possibly get on your cards and you play them and as a co-op you defeat the bad guys so you know i can't knock it it's rather expensive for the gameplay's concerned but for the number of miniatures it's pretty dynamic so do you have a, some sort of feeling? Should we check back with you next week to see if you uh, back this or not? I mean, you can check back. I'm I'm still leaning no. I, I told okay. you this before. Like, if they threw any X-Men in there, I'd probably lean yes. <laughs> Which maybe it's just my brain saying, like, they're probably not going to do that. So this is how I yeah. think of myself. Uh, <laughs> but 
But if they did, if like they popped up tomorrow as like a last minute surprise, we got the X Men. I'm like, ah, dang it. <laughs> Yeah, I think the I think that goes for me as well. I think as I've been trying to tempt you into backing this, I've been slowly being pulled into this. X Men would definitely push it over the edge, and I guess a lot of people are looking for some sort of Fantastic Four or yeah, Punisher or uh, someone mentioned if they could do a Galactus miniature Ooh. as big as the Cthulhu miniature that we saw not too long oh, ago. God. <laughs> that's, that's so not the right game for this, but it'd be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> be like a nice crossover ah you have cthulhu we have galactus ah there you go <laughs> giant three foot miniature to play with your game so oh man well this has been fun i'm glad it's over <laughs> i should note as well we are absolutely not doing an ad for this it's just chris torturing me no as always we are not backed by any publisher because we want to bring you the straight on all of these games and even if it means you know torturing anthony a little bit all the better all right, Anthony. So that's it for your torture acquisition disorder. Let's get on to your actual acquisition disorder. What do you have for up for us this week? Okay, I have something that's way cheaper than everything you just said. Um, this is Tumbletown, the dice stacking spatial puzzle game. It's on Kickstarter right now. And it is uh, from Weird Giraffe Games, who did Fire in the Library and a couple other games that were like sleeper hits that I rather enjoyed. This one has you basically stacking dice in different formats. So if you've played blueprints at all, where you roll dice and you try to basically draft them out and stack them into certain permutations and they score based on which colors of dice and numbers that you have in there, it's similar to that. You're trying to build stuff up. But in this one, you're also building a tableau. So as you go along, you're going to get these different cards that do different abilities and allow you to manipulate your dice in different ways based on the different structures that you've built. So if you go to the Kickstarter page, the tableau is just all these different dice stacked in these different ways. It looks really cool. My major concern here, of course, is if someone bumps a table and these all fall down, the game is just over because you're not going to remember how you had it all stacked. But mechanically speaking, it is dice manipulation and engine building, which are two of my absolute favorite mechanics. Um, there's a bit of a spatial puzzle in here and you say the word puzzle, and I'm like already just in. I don't even know what it is. I'm like, yes, let's do it. And thematically speaking, I you know, the Wild West thing, I could take it or leave it. I like it sometimes. I don't other times. So it's, it's not a make or break thing for me, but it seems like it's well implemented here. My main thing looking at the Kickstarter, of course, is that the artwork is hopefully not final. It's not great um, looking through here. These all look very much like prototype cards and images and I'm somewhat surprised they don't have any final artwork on the uh, Kickstarter page to show off what the game is going to look like. But it, in terms of the actual mechanics, watching a couple videos, this looks like a fun, interesting spin on kind of the spatial dice puzzle games. There's a few of them out there and I really enjoy them. So I'm keeping my eye on this guy because I think it's probably one I'm going to back. It's 29 bucks. So it's right in that, you know, sweet spot and there's a print and play as well so it might be something i can just print out and give it a go um before you know it ships in like a year or so so this one's on kickstarter just recently went up it's going to be on until thursday march 26th and uh it's called tumble town and it's very much on my radar to, to pick up but does it come with 35 different miniatures no but it comes with 100 dice 
So, Ooh. I mean, come on. I know this is more along your lines as far as the spatial puzzle building, but it's really, it's it's pretty adorable. I'm not a f- big fan of the Old West kind of theme. As you mentioned, the artwork certainly could use some work. But, you know, this is one of those types of Kickstarters that you're actually backing in order to improve the product. So maybe they have some stretch goals in here to kind of back it up. It's not one of those simon it's already done it's already in the printer it's just a matter of just how much stuff do you want to stuff in your closet so very very yeah. cool yeah no it's funny because i was just reading an article yesterday about um platinum games this is on the video game side is re-releasing mm-hmm. the wonderful 101 which was a wii u game that nobody played for the switch and the ps4 i think mm-hmm. and it's it's on kickstarter now but it's going to publish in like a month so obviously it's just a pre-order and so the people writing the article were just like is this what kickstarter is and i'm like yeah of course it is <laughs> board gamers know that's what it is what are you talking about jeez we've well, been living under a miniature or something come on yeah man, wake up right like kickstarter is <laughs> not about helping people realize their dreams it's a pre-order for large companies uh <laughs> at least in the board game space finding things like this is fun because i'm like yeah they obviously need the money to publish it so i'm i'm very much more interested because of that yeah i absolutely agree so all right well i want to talk about a kickstarter that is clearly just a pre-order at this point (laughs) it is queen games merlin deluxe big box clearly my uh my my uh vocation in life has become torturing anthony on kickstarter so this is another game that has seen earlier kind of base productions and expansion productions on Kickstarter. And clearly Queen Games has made the corporate decision that the best way to market and sell their games is through Kickstarter. And to be fair, they're probably right because if you were around for a couple of years ago and you were in that great Queen Game purge of 2000, whatever, you'll understand that Queen doesn't seem to have a good idea about their... So they tend to overproduce or underproduce. Unfortunately, they overproduce the bad games and underproduce the good games. So I've already done a review, and I know Anthony's done a updated review for the expansion here. Merlin is a game about Arthurian legend, and primarily the mechanic here is a set collection contract completion. So basically, you're rolling your dice... And you're moving Merlin around the board in order to collect the appropriate resources in order to complete the contracts on your cards. So the cards might require flags or shields or such. Pretty simple, pretty basic. The game moves relatively fast. It's a light to medium weight game. And it's all about who can complete the most contracts possible. The author expansion adds a new action rondelle that covers over the original one. A new author pawn. That gives you another option to move around on the board. It gives you some additional dice to move author around, some boards to hold your dice, and some additional enemy picks in the game. There's also, with the author expansion, you have the Knights of the Round Table, which gives you some a little bit asymmetrical power play in the game, which was definitely needed because the base game was very, very generic. This new expansion and new big box version comes with Morgana. This is the new addition to with a new expansion which once again adds a new action rondelle and also some new resources so there's gold in the game there's mistletoe in the game 
and there are some additional boards. There's a market board, and there is the Morgana board. So in this new expansion, which is very cool, it has you know additional modules because if you know anything about Queen Games, they are all about their modules. So the Morgana module is all about manipulating these purple dice in order to be able to mess with other players. So one of the problems with the first game was in fact that you rarely, if ever, interacted with anyone. You just basically bumped up to each other every once in a while. This Morgana expansion allows you to slow down other players and make their contract completion a little more difficult. I don't know if I would say that's true kind of player interaction, you know, but nonetheless, it's a little more take that kind of situation. It also adds a additional kind of rondelle board, which I mentioned earlier, and a market which you'll be able to use the gold for extra dice, for extra shields, for extra pips. Basically, this game is all about, you know, just trying to get the most out of a light to medium game where you're just doing contract completions as fast as possible. This big box version is really interesting because it also is included with game trays. So you can just back the expansion if you have the other pieces. You can also back the expansion and the giant empty box, which you could put your other stuff in if you've already backed the previous versions. Or you could be, buy the whole thing. It's basically about $133 plus shipping. I don't know about this one personally, but I am interested because I do feel like there's a very good game here. This is a Stefan Feld game, a big Feld fan. I love Arthurian Legend here. The artwork is not bad. The gameplay is okay. I'm hoping that there's a number of these combination of modules you could put together that makes it a truly solid game. If you are interested on the Merlin Beg Box or its expansion, this campaign will wrap up Thursday, March 12th, 2020. Yeah, you sent this to me when it popped up, and I'd actually already seen it, but hadn't really looked at it much. It's tough because the big box is great, you know, especially the game trays help to organize everything. I have everything jammed into the normal box and it barely fits. So adding another expansion would be rough. But yeah, like I went through and did the math, like in the backing thing. If you got the expansion and the empty big box. Yes. It's $81 shipped. Wow. Because they're shipping it presumably from Europe because it's in euros and it's 18 euros to ship it here. Because it's a big empty box, it takes up a lot of space. I was yeah. like, oh, maybe I'll just jam it in tighter. I don't. I'm not really sure what to do about this, but it's 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 a tough one to be on board with. And I don't know. Like, I love this game. It's one of my favorite Stefan Feld games. Somehow, like with all the stuff that they've added on over time, I really like it. But it never hits the table because enough people just are not interested in a, a roll and move Stefan Feld game. Yeah, so, I'm on the fence. I'll. I might just back the expansion. The big box is tempting, but that's a lot of money. And over the years, Queen Games with their big boxes, I've always admired them because I love having everything in one spot. If you're a board gamer, especially if you're a Euro gamer or heavier, you typically like the ideas of, of things being organized and arranged and everything and all the bits and stuff. And obviously these trays are fantastic, but then they become very difficult to transport. And I think mm -hmm. that's a thing more and more we're seeing these days where publishers are listening to us as far as, hey, it'd be great if we could stick everything together. It'd be fantastic if there was some sort of organizational situation there. So bravo to everyone who's getting on board with that. But 
I got to tell you, the last couple of big Kickstarters that came out, I've been asking people, are they going to bring them to game night? And they're like, I don't know how, because yeah. they're so huge. I mean, like, for example, Suburbia is one. Oh, I, have uh, yeah. I have Tracarion that's huge. And just in general, the Queen Big Box games are so enormous. And before this one, they didn't have the lockdown game trays. So if you're bringing out Fresco or Alhambra or any of the other ones, you move the wrong way and all the pieces go flying on the inside. So I'm not sure. It's something that has to be addressed, and I'm not sure how we can address it as an industry. But these big boxes, while are very helpful, they are difficult to store and difficult to transport. 100%. Yeah, I've gotten, you mentioned Tercarion, which I did get, but I haven't played yet because of that. I have the Snowdonia Special Edition, which I have not played yet because of that. The Alhambra Mega Box, which I haven't played yet because of that. So because my children are generally awake at the time I would be playing games with people, I don't generally have people at my house a lot, and I can't travel with these jumbo boxes. So I'm very wary of picking them up now because it's just not possible to get them anywhere. Yeah, it's sad. All right, so that's everything for our acquisition disorders. Anthony, let's get to the games that did hit the table this week, and we'll let everyone know if those games are a buy, and they should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play, and they should sit down and play them, those games are a dodge, and they should miss them completely, like you are currently doing with Marvel United. Or if mm. those games are the dreaded burn, like those giant big boxes that we can never get to the table, what do you have up for us this week, Anthony? All right, yeah, so I have a, a interesting one, actually, and a fun story. This is Little Town from Yellow Games, and it was actually originally published in Japan, um, designed by Shun and Aya Taguchi. This game first came out three years ago, I think, um, but the Yellow published a version of it last year or the year before, so it's relatively new. Um, but what happened with this is I was actually at the local game store with my children. We were just on a walk, and they wanted us up in, so we did. And my youngest, she was five, she picked out some new variant of um, the Animal Upon Animal. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, we love this. It's fun. Here's a new version. And my oldest, he's eight, picked out Little Town, which he generally leans towards the games that are in the children's section. And this one was in the family section, but it's probably the more gamery game that he's picked out on his own and that he now owns because we picked it up there. Uh, and he was very excited to play it. So we got a chance to play this a couple times. And it's by no means like a big heavy game. It's It was perfectly suited for me and him. He did very well at it. You know, eight, I think the community age on this is eight. The box age is 10. I think that's probably spot on. Depends on your child. But he did very well at it. Um, the game itself is fairly simple. In it, you have a board with a bunch of empty spaces and then some pre-printed lakes and forests and stone. You have five workers and I believe five or six buildings. And on your turn, you'll do one of two things. You'll either put a worker out on the board and activate everything that's adjacent to them, both orthogonally and diagonally. Or you'll put them in the market and they'll build something from the tableau of buildings. There's a tableau of 12 buildings that you can build, plus there's five wheat fields available. So 17 buildings throughout the game. And mechanics here basically are you need to put buildings out because they're worth points of course but also if other people use your building you get money from them uh, additionally you need to produce goods from the board by placing your workers out there to get the wood and the stone to build stuff but also the fish and the wheat to feed your people so 
I was, we opened this up and because I didn't know anything about it because my son picked it out. I didn't know it had a feed your people mechanic. And I was reading the rules and I was like, oh, I hopefully he handles this okay. I don't know. Like it's such a, like a gamer gamer thing to do to penalize people for not having enough food. But it's relatively easy. There's plenty of lakes. There's plenty of wheat that's going to go on the board. So you can generate enough food. You need five per round uh, in the four rounds. He was able to do that every time. He never lost any points. And you lose points when you don't feed your people. So I guess, you know, make sure your children fully understand what's going to happen if they don't get enough fish and wheat. But otherwise, it seemed fairly well balanced for the age group. But overall, it was a lot of fun. It's a bit of a puzzle. You're trying to figure out where you can place your guys to generate enough resources, to build the right buildings that are giving you enough points and generate enough dollars. The building tableau doesn't refill at all. So you see all the buildings that are possible to build the entire game, which is very interesting. And because the diagonals do count, it's almost a spatial puzzle to determine where you can put your workers to generate resources but also where you can block other people from generating the resources they need, right? And like the second time we played, he started to figure that out, which is kind of fun to watch. It was mean, but it was fun to watch. There's also objectives. You'll start the game with four objective cards. That'll be things like, you know, build a building with a certain combination of goods or generate this many goods from one action. And when you do that, you'll generate the points from those cards. So overall, as a family weight kind of middle it's a two on b you know bgg probably a little bit lower in my opinion but it's not like a crazy crazy light game there's a bit of puzzliness here there's a bit of tableau building type of um or engine building type of mechanics in this it was really fun i had a lot of fun with it um he had a ton of fun with it we're definitely going to play it some more and i think it really works well at that family weight or introductory you know gateway-ish weight of a game so I'm going to give Little Town a buy. Um, pleasantly surprised. It's rare that I'm hit by a game I've never seen before, but you know, the, all thanks to my son for picking this one out because it was a it was a good pickup. Yeah, this is absolutely adorable, and I'm actually wondering just looking at it because it has a Uwe Rosenberg type of look as far as you mentioned having to produce food in, in order to feed your family and such. So that's completely Uwe. And yet it has a lot of this Imperial Settler type of look to it. And since it's a yellow game, the production is pretty fantastic. And I'm wondering if there is not a market for these like lightweight Euro games that are family friendly, but you could play with gamers and just like knock out a dozen of them at night. I I could see that. I mean, there's not really a way to make it harder necessarily, but there's limited resources and limited actions. And so the game really just comes down to who can be most efficient with what's in front of them. I could definitely see gamers getting into this. And it was like a 45 to 60 minute game with an eight year old. So with gamers, I imagine this would fly pretty quick. All right. So talking about, (laughs) I wouldn't say family games, but a Kickstarter game that came to my family (laughs) that I did not back, but Anthony and I got a chance to play is trial by trolley now if you're not familiar with the kickstarter it's just probably because you're not a fan of cyanide and happiness which is a video series that's primarily on youtube 
And it's just a lot of really kind of, hey, that's really cute and adorable. And then it all suddenly it goes super dark and twisted and sometimes even kind of evil. Now, Trial by Trolley, as you could probably guess, is a version of, well, I don't want to say a version of Cards Against Humanity because Cards Against Humanity is a version of Apples to Apples. But basically, that's what it is. It's another one of these games where... You will have a team, you will put cards on the table, and then there will be a judge. Now, trial by trolley relates to this big kind of philosophical question of pragmatism. So the idea is there is a lever on the trolley track, and you have the opportunity to switch the tracks to, let's say, save one family member or save five innocent people. So what do you do? Do you sacrifice your family member or do you sacrifice those five strangers? And that's one of those philosophical questions, problems, things that, you know, stumps philosophers or pragmatists are like, what is for the greater good? Do you have a bigger and more important responsibility to your family member or the number of people? Here, you don't have to really worry about that so much, but it does give you that same kind of questionable decision-making process is concerned. So basically, you have this very kind of simple little board, which basically has a little track on it. One team will build up one side and the other team will build up the other side. And then, of course, there'll be the trolley conductor here that will make the decision on which railway gets kind of run over. So let me give you an example here. So this is actually an example that we had in a game. One team had Santa Claus. Now, the first card, the innocent card, kind of comes randomly and gets thrown on the board. So one team had Santa Claus. And then your team gets to put down a second innocent card in order to dissuade the trolley person from running you over. And in this case, we had a scientist who literally just discovered the cure to cancer, right? So Santa Claus and a scientist who cured cancer, perfect. Now, the other team gets to put a guilty card on your side. So in the case here, we got Putin on a bear for some reason. And that was the kind of decision to make. The other side had a runaway stroller carrying triplets. Pretty, pretty, pretty bad there. And a surprise party just for you. And the bad thing was... A butcher making meat pies out of dogs, cats, and babies. Okay. <laughs> so at that point, you think you have everything straight now, what you're going to do, but the game itself lets you add a modifier card that you can add to your cards or the other player's cards. And for example here, the modifier cards for the, the person creating all those devastatingly evil pies was we'll do anything for you if you save them. So again, it's one of those kind of like philosophical questions and the ideas that you're supposed to debate those things and the party goers that are going to make a big party for you. It turns out that they're on their way to murder someone you knew in high school. So once you have that set up, both sides will argue to the judge, which side is more worthy of not getting run over. And that's the game. So once everyone has an opportunity to be the trolley master, then you take a look at how many death tokens you have because 
The Trolley Master previously ran over your people, and whoever has the least wins the game. I will mention Anthony actually won this game because he is a master of this yes. game, so to speak. I didn't. Because I got them all right. <laughs> I think it's all his training in 18 double X that actually uh, led his victory here. Unexpected, but very relevant connection. Yes. <laughs> Anything with train tracks, Anthony rules. Oh, that's so, right. There's a train game. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Well, that's that's what happened. That's obviously what that's what happened. So basically, once again, it's cards against humanity. You make a decision: what's more gross, what's more happy, what's more interesting, what's more fun. And again, it's almost primarily based upon the people that are playing the game. I would say generally we had a good time with it, although it was kind of ridiculous, but yet fun to put the combinations together. There's a lot of cards that come with the base set. There is, you know, Kickstarter versions that come with miniatures unnecessarily that kind of give you a little bit bump in the price. But if you're interested, Trial by Trolley, again, it's another one of these party game Cards Against Humanities, apples to apples kind of situations. It's fine. I'm going to give it a play, a very light play, especially if you have the right group for it. It was fine. And Cyanide and Happiness totally twisted and sometimes fun so why not i think they already had choking hazard which was another kickstarter that was out there so i guess of the two this is probably be my choice but they're both about the same so what do you think anthony you played this yeah about the same it's it was fun it was fun you can see this being very dull and not particularly fun with the wrong group because part of it too is you have to argue your side if you don't argue your side then you're just throwing a bunch of random cards out and staring at the person waiting for them to do something, right? It's about the social interaction. And I could easily see that not happening in certain groups and it the game not being a whole lot of fun. So in our particular situation, it was kind of fun. But I don't know. This is never a game I seek out or type of game I would seek out. But if it's there, I would play it. All right. So that's everything that's hitting our table. Anthony, let's get on to our feature review. All right, now on to our feature review. This week, we are talking about our friends' favorite games again, and uh, we have a very special guest with us, Andrew Parks. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, it's nice to be back, guys. Absolutely. Yeah, we've known each other for about as long as we've done this podcast. Uh, we met you <laughs> way back in the day at Myriad Games, and yeah, uh, like just early on, I feel like we see you at every origins and get to hear a little bit about what you're working on. And it's yeah, always exciting. nice. Always nice seeing you guys. Yeah, absolutely. What we do here, what we try to do here anyways, is we bring people on like yourself who have just a diverse background in gaming and uh, just talk about your favorite games and sure. kind of how they got you where you are and, you know, what you love about them and, and what they've influenced in your life. So with that, I'm kind of just going to give it to you and let you go. Sure. I mean, I, I definitely would be hard for me to choose one game that's my favorite game, but I have two games that I, I definitely put in that category and I play them all the time whenever I have the chance. They're both big games, like long, uh, which shouldn't surprise anyone who's played my own games. <laughs> They're not particularly short, but yeah, the the first game, and I, I've been playing it all the time, especially now that I have it on my iPad, is Through the Ages. Um, nice. I've been playing that game continuously. Uh, it's just such a beautiful design, and I, I just love the fact that Vlada went in and made all of the corrections and improvements to the game when working on, I don't know if you know the story, but when he was working on the video game version, 
he realized there were balance issues in the game that he had never seen before because they were oh, wow. playing it so often. And that's why they created through the ages, a new story of civilization, which came out first as um, a board game uh, mm-hmm. while they were working on the digital game, but it incorporated all of the adjustments that they had made after years of playing the game and particularly while they were working on the digital game. So, um, so when the digital game came out, it had already been reflected in the regular tabletop version of the game. And in fact, that that game, the, a new story of civilization, has now overtaken the original through the ages on Board Game Geek, and I believe that it's number I want to say three or four uh, on the top ten list of BGG. So they they did a great job. It's just amazing. And then they just put out an expansion for it. And the expansion adds more characters, and they're randomly inserted into each game. So it's just, it does take up all of the time and energy of my battery on my iPad. Um, <laughs> when I get my little weekly report from the iPad, this is what you've been doing on the iPad. Through the ages is always number one. Maybe if I've been checking a lot of email, Gmail will beat that out. But uh, it's just a wonderful game. And the reason I, I think the reason I love it so much is that every single time you begin, you know you're going to end with some kind of a story, like the empire that you have created, uh, the civilization that you have created. Um, You just can look back and you just check all the things that you've built, and it's a story on its own. And it's not a story that the designer told you and you just sort of followed along and maybe made a couple of decisions. Instead, it's your own story that you created. Uh, The designer created a framework for that story. And then when you were done... You got to look and winning is fun, but it's not necessary, you know, because the circumstances are so unique with the way the events are seeded and everything. And I often play it against just the AI. The AI is that good on that game, the digital version. I play four player all the time and I would say I win one out of every four games. So it's, it's that, it's that impressive. Yeah. It's just wonderful. The other game that I consider my favorite game is uh, war of the ring, very different game than through the ages mechanically. Um, but it is such a beautiful game, again, from that same perspective of I start the game from a certain point, and I know at the end of that game I'm going to have my own novel, my own story of what happened. And um, it's hard for me sometimes to find someone willing to sit down and and spend all that time with me. Uh, I'm very fortunate that my good friend Coleman Charlton, um, Mm. who has recently retired from Mayfair Games and was part of the original Iron Crown Enterprises back in the 70s, 80s. So he and I get together every once in a while and play games, and he always wants to play this game. And for the record, I have not beaten him once in (laughs) War of the Ring. He is a master at this game, but I still have fun playing it. Although the last time we played, I was getting grumpy because we had added an expansion in, and I was like, what's going on? He just destroyed me. He had the army of the dead. And and they were just like, they just... They just made Sauron look like a fool. And the whole thing was just an embarrassment. And he was just <laughs> laughing, you know. So he's a great guy to play with. And he he appreciates the fact that I like to take things from a story perspective. So I'm usually narrating what's happening while we're playing. So, but right. yes, Coleman, don't play Coleman in that game unless you don't mind losing because you will lose. <laughs> uh, we, I actually have gotten the Ares Collector's Edition. Um, and oh my God. It's beautiful with all the paint. I'm, I'm missing one of the expansions on there. I have the base game and I have the Warriors of Middle Earth, but they had, I think, offered the first expansion before they offered the base game as the painted version. 
So the mm. first expansion painted version is you have to find it on eBay or something. I hope they'll reprint it one day. It's just a beautiful game, and uh, it, 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 you, you, whether you're playing Sauron or you're playing the Fellowship, you just have a sense that your characters are engaged in this sort of high-stakes drama. And mm. what the other person does, it's going to help you determine the fate of your characters. You know, Gimli could take one for the team and die, or Gandalf falls and comes back as Gandalf the White later. I mean, just that for me, and, and when we look at our industry now, that really, even though those are not, neither of those games is a storytelling game specifically, but we, we have an industry now that is become dominated in a great way by storytelling games. And storytelling games have grown over the years, and, and especially in the last few years. Um, Gloomhaven really, I think, was the 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 mark of we're moving from storytelling games being a, a tier two sort of a game up until now everybody wants one in tier one. And mm. uh, it has really tra- changed the industry. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a wonderful thing because that's what I want to be doing now with my game designs. I want to focus more and more on games that tell stories uh, in various degrees. So I think that's one of the reasons why those two games have such an appeal to me. War of the Ring is actually my favorite game of all time as well. It's been on my number one for the last three years. And I just absolutely love that game. And not just because it's such a faithful recreation of that saga, but like you said, it's a way to kind of tell the story in your own way and kind of work through it. So as someone who's worked on multiple IP-based games, like you worked on Star Trek Attack Wing and Frontiers and, uh, you know, the Assault of the Giants, all these different games that kind of use, you know, existing IPs, how do you approach that from a if you want to give players that experience some level of like story or agency and control over that when you have like existing you know story arcs and expectations that they might bring in with them? Well, it really it depends upon the circumstances of the game that you're working on um, and how much is allowed by the licensor. Uh, for example, with Star Trek Frontiers, um, we created a story and uh, Paramount CBS as a, was a licensor and they were totally fine with us, you know, coming up with what this story would be to explain why we have all of these characters fighting against the Borg and, and what, what sec, this is a new sector that they're just exploring and everything. And then we took it one step further with the expansion, the return of Khan. Um, they had asked me if you could do an expansion for Star Trek frontiers, cause it had been doing well, what would you do? And I said, if I could do exactly what I wanted to do, I'm not saying I'm going to get to do this, but I would definitely do a mm. game that features Khan because I love Khan. It's my favorite part. I know that the other game is sort of set in a DS9 Star Trek Next Generation time period. So I said, I would want to have some sort of time traveling bridge, bring the original series characters in, have them come to this other story with the Borg. If I could, If you guys could let me do that, I really be you know appreciative. It'll be fun, and so they did. They, they WizKids was great. They said to me, All right, "Look, we'll try it. We can't guarantee it. We'll try it. We'll send it to the licensor." And we ended up creating it. It's on the first page of the rule book for Return of Khan. We created this whole narrative to explain how Khan survived the Genesis explosion and how he uh, opened up a rift in time and ended up in the uh, in the future in the time of of Picard. And uh, Kirk steers the Enterprise after them. And we sent it to these guys, uh, the licensors, and they're like, okay, we see what you're <laughs> trying to do here. This is very interesting. 
we got to tell you a couple things though. Uh, and the guy was awesome. I don't remember his name, but he was just like, look, you can do this, 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 and this. There's a couple things we got to kind of like, like I'm sure. And he so of course knew perfectly the time frame. So we set it in the time frame uh, after Kirk had been demoted um, and was back to being Captain Kirk, and they had the Enterprise A. And he goes, look, they're not going. Why would they send Kirk back over there? They, you know, he's already in big trouble. So, <laughs> so they helped me work out an excuse for why Kirk went there to investigate the area where the Genesis planet had been and so on. And of course the planet was destroyed by that point from the third movie. So anyway, it was so much fun working with them and they let me do 90% of what I wanted to do. And everything that they suggested to change made the story better. And I'm not just saying that like to be polite, like they really had, they really allowed themselves to, to follow our story. And so we created the story and it's been a very successful expansion. Um, people really seem to enjoy it. And uh, that was, I think, one of the most fun parts of working with a license and the story. Not every licensor, I dare say most licensors, will not give you that kind of freedom to write within their own universe. But um, the Star Trek folks, they were just great. So what would you say, like, you know, War of the Ring being, you know, kind of a prime example of an IP-based game that uh, everybody really gravitates towards, what would you say you took from that or learned from that you've applied to your own games? Um, I think the biggest thing that... I've learned from War of the Ring is that, uh, first of all, you can't be afraid to have the world end as other people know it. Like when you play War of the Ring, when I was playing against Coleman recently, you know, he went up right away and took out the Shire. Uh, that's like where he sent all the Nazgul there, the whole thing, and won the game that way. So um, it was exciting to see that the, that you could play a game set in an IP and change destiny and the future of what what you can do and for a non-ip game the idea that you could approach storytelling from many different angles at the same time i think one of the great things about war of the ring is that it uses those cards to not only change rules of the game but to generate story inflections and one of the things that we've tried to do especially with games that on their surface were not storytelling games is to add those kind of inflections. So with Dungeon Alliance, when we um, created Dungeon Alliance, we is not in and of itself a storytelling game at its root design. And then during the first Kickstarter, people asked us to add more storytelling elements. So we created these quest cards. And these quest cards immediately took your party from a group of adventurers that were going in to clear a dungeon in competition with other people's bands of adventurers, but also there were these quests that you were competing with the other groups for. Um, one of the things that makes Dungeon Alliance different from other games like this is that you control a whole team of adventurers yourself. So you control four people um, and every other player controls four people. So now when there's a quest, my group and your group might be competing to complete that quest and it added that layer of story in. And then when we worked on the second Kickstarter, um, I wanted to have more of those sorts of War of the Ring inflection points where things very specific story elements were occurring, but they weren't occurring in a specific order. One of the things that's great about War of the Ring is because you're playing with this shuffled deck, the eagles can come, but they can come early or they can come late. You know, the Witch King can show up earlier or late based upon decisions and cards that are played. Really, the best way to play War of the Ring is to look at your hand of cards and formulate a strategy based upon that. So when we worked on the second Kickstarter for Dungeon Alliance, we created the adventure packs. And the concept of the adventure packs 
was that there would be this story going on in the background and you would choose the way in which you engaged with that story. So there's a campaign deck similar to something that you would see, say, in Pandemic Legacy. But instead of that campaign deck going from top to bottom, instead, at certain moments, you'll see a card you can draft, and that would have you pull specific cards, maybe out of the middle or towards the end of that campaign deck. And now you've decided that in this story, say, of War in the Deep, where the drow are having a three-way battle against the trolls and against the dwarves, you can decide, I'm actually going to ally myself with the Dark Elves. And I happened upon one of their sacrificial altars, and I could try to stop them from doing what they're doing, or I could help them because I want their favor. And so I think that that's been successful for those adventure packs because it allows people to engage with the story and not have to guess, what's the correct way for me to do this? What does the designer want me to do? Because if I can't guess what the designer wants me to do, then I'm likely to fail or be embarrassed or humiliated or something. So we were careful that just as the bad guys can win in War of the Ring, you can do bad things. Uh, and that's okay, because that's the story that you've chosen to tell with your characters. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's really cool to just kind of see how it all ties back together. Obviously, the, you know, these games have big influence on your everything you've worked on and what you've been working on. And you are generally a very busy guy. Every time we talk to you, you're working on something new that you're excited about. Yeah. So, or a couple things at the same yeah, time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you kind of as we wrap things up, if there's anything upcoming or current that you wanted to promote or, you know, just get the word out about. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the the adventure packs first and foremost, because now just this January, they became available to people who weren't involved with the Kickstarter. And they can be gotten exclusively through our own Dungeon Alliance store at quixoticgames.com. And so uh, if you're enjoying Dungeon Alliance or you're interested in this kind of storytelling, uh, Rado just did a big, um, his January overview of games he's played. He has a whole section devoted to the adventure packs and, and he says some really nice things about them. So definitely check that out. The other project, which people have been asking me about for a few years now, when we first mentioned it, um, is a Core Worlds game set after the first game. So there's a game called Core Worlds Empires. It's a worker placement game, so it's completely different mechanics from the other Core Worlds, but it's set in that same universe. And in fact, in order to keep that sort of continuity of story, uh, it takes place after the other game, after the, the five or six barbaric kingdoms have overthrown the Supreme Monarch. And now you're ruling your own and managing your own empire and the other players are managing their empires. But we've actually created a bridge mechanic that allows you, if you want to, to take information from your Core World session and carry it over into the start of Core World's empires. Oh, cool. um, so that's exciting. I know they've, uh, they've also done that recently, actually with War of the Ring and Hunt for the Ring. In Hunt for the Ring, you can play that and then carry information over to War of the Rings. So um, I was excited when I heard that, but also a little disappointed because I thought we're going to be the first game that does this. Uh, but we're very excited about it. And I have a little bit of a scoop for you, which hasn't been announced yet, depending upon when this podcast plays. But that is that Quixotic Games, which is my design company, which normally designs for other game companies and continues to do so, and, but has self-published some games, as you know, Canterbury and Dungeon Alliance, is now going to be the future publisher of all Core Worlds games. So, nice. yeah, Quixotic Games is we we had a, uh, a great relationship with Stronghold Games over the years, and mm -hmm. Stronghold Games um, is allowing us basically to pick things up from there. And so, all future Core Worlds games will be Quixotic Games products now. And what's really nice is that 
we were able to work something out with Stronghold that we could still use a lot of the same basis of logos and artwork and graphic design, um, which was wonderful of them to do. They didn't have to do that. And it'll give that sense of continuity from the original games and future games or reprints of the original games if we do something like that in the in the far future. But definitely our first project will be Core World's Empires, the worker placement game. Um, there's some information and some actually some prototype screenshots on BoardGameGeek of the game. And we should be doing a Kickstarter for it later this year, hopefully in the first half of the year. That's fantastic. Yeah, congratulations. So you guys got the scoop. You have the scoop. That's awesome. Yeah, we just finished working things out with Stronghold over this. So, And there, as I said, they were so generous and so great to us to allow us to kind of take over um, as they were the exclusive publishers. Um, and now we're going to be able to be the uh, exclusive publishers. That's great. I would definitely look forward to that uh, going up. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so absolutely fantastic. It's always fun to have uh, you on. I know we've talked a couple times in the past, um, like when Dungeon Alliance went up. And it's always fun to talk to anybody about war of the ring it's i have the same problem as you or <laughs> nobody really wants to sit down and play that for four hours but i'm like it's worth it so i've yeah i converted yeah. a couple people to the cause this last year and now i'm poking them to try to get back to the table again excellent so yeah we really appreciate you coming on and uh sharing your favorite games as well as you know your current and upcoming projects and really hope everything goes well for you that's exciting news and uh we'll definitely be sure to keep an eye out thank you and thank you so much for having me on thanks Andrew. take care Okay, talk to you guys later. All right, that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat on the trolley tracks. <laughs>